This is the Alternative Investing Advantage podcast from Advanta IRA, where we show you how to explore investments beyond Wall Street and open your eyes to new options for your portfolio. It's time to take control and give yourself the freedom to choose where you invest your money. Hi, and welcome to another edition of the Alternative Investing Advantage podcast. My name is Alex Perney, and today we're very pleased to welcome on Louis O'Connor with Strategic Metals Invest. We're going to be talking about investing in metals, but maybe not necessarily the kind that you're used to hearing about when you talk about investing in metals, things like uh, gold, platinum, silver, palladium. Uh, we're going to be talking about things that are maybe a little bit more, uh, not to <laughs> borrow on the name, but strategic uh, in the world economy, things that uh, kind of run your day-to-day lives, things that go into making things like microchips, computers, wiring houses, all sorts of different things that are certainly valuable and their nature as a commodity, but also very scarce as well. So again, we're going to be kind of branching out of what people normally think of when it comes to investing in metals. So again, Louis, thank you very much for being on with us today. Give us a little bit of background about yourself and kind of how you came to be in your position with Strategic Metals Invest, and then we'll kind of jump into the nature of what we had discussed today, okay? Yeah, thanks very much, Alex. Uh, good to be here. Happy to be here with you. So, yeah, Louis, uh, my name is Louis O'Connor. Um, you can probably tell from the accent I'm uh, over the other side of the pond. So um, we're actually based in Europe, but uh, I'm coming to you from, from Ireland. I'm Irish, but our main office is in right back, right in the middle of, of Europe in Frankfurt in Germany and our, our storage facility the vault is um, where we store. We do store precious metals there. We also store the, the platinum group metals that, that you mentioned. But what we also store and what our core business is that we'll be talking about today are um, the, the scientific term for them are, would be rare earth elements. Um, but as you said, they're, 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 they're actually strategic to how we to how we live our daily lives. Great. So uh, kind of how do you, uh, you know, most people probably don't get into the go to college for the purpose of uh, starting uh, to invest in commodities such as uh, things that are as well, I would say niche, but you know, this really has kind of blossomed to a much larger industry. How'd you kind of come to get to where you're at? Yeah, actually, it's a good, it's a very good observation, because, um, you know, you could probably say it was a bit of a niche or a niche, um, not too long ago. um, Because, the, 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 just to give you a quick example, for example, I'll just use my smartphone as an analogy there. There's, there's, there's 12 precious metals in, in every smartphone, maybe sometimes 13. Um, so every smartphone, for example, has a little bit of gold in it, you know, micro doses, but also has some silver. So the metals we talk about today are the other 10 that people may or may not have heard of. Gallium, germanium, hafnium, indium. And neodymium, perseodymium. Um, and I suppose one of the reasons people may not have heard of them or considered them as physical assets is it's only, it's a relatively new asset class. It's only since about 2010 that private investors can actually physically own these metals. And, and that's, that's what we do today. That's what we're, we'll talk about is, is actually physically owning them as, as, as a physical asset. I mean, you can invest in a mine that produces them or maybe a refinery even but but we're talking about the same paradigm as as owning gold or silver here which is you physically own the asset and 
One of the reasons um, it's relatively new is that prior to 2010, the only way you could really invest in the industry was, was by, like I said, investing in a mine or a mining company. And I suppose the most important thing I can tell you about us, um, which it might sound like a little contradiction or a paradox, but the most important thing about us is not that we offer these as an investment. That's what you could say nearly is our side business. The most important thing about us is our core business is that we are a supplier of rare earth elements. And, you know, 80% of our business activities um, on a daily basis is we're buying these materials directly from producers. And then we resell them back to industry. We've over 2000 industry buyers in 70 different countries in the world that we sell to. Now, if that wasn't our core business, it wouldn't, you know, we couldn't safely um, offer rare earths as physical assets because the only end buyer uh, for these raw materials are industry buyers. So, so we private, provide access to an industry private investors would not normally have access to. Yeah, and that's a good point is that, you know, anything can be uh, scarce, but there has to be a market for it to be kind of, you know, viewed as an investment. Uh, you know, it's just because you own something that might intrinsically be, you know, rare or scarce does not necessarily make it um, you know, inherently valuable if there's not someone on the other end of the line willing to pay a price or willing to pay a multiple of a price because it's needed for some type of industry, which, you know, kind of leads into the next question I want to ask you is that, you know, again, my understanding of this is probably a little bit more than, you know, let's say, you know, your average Joe, but, you know, these things that people may not have necessarily heard of, why are they necessarily useful? Kind of going back, you know, maybe 50 years, these types of rare earth elements, granted, they were rare, they were, you know, not very abundant, but there wasn't necessarily so much of a need for them or a, a use case to where they would, you know, there would be a market to be made for this. You could own a big chunk of uh, neodymium, but no one's going to be buying it. So what kind of industries have blossomed to make these things so you know, desirable in certain industries and, and kind of where are those markets going that is going to continue to bolster these types of industries? Yeah, great insight, uh, Alex. So you're right, until about the first time I suppose we really started to use rare earths or demand started to increase for them, would you believe was in the 1960s when we went from black and white TVs to color TVs. And that mm -hmm. was really the only demand for them until about the 1980s. And at that time, actually, in the 1980s, the U.S. was the largest producer of rare earths, producing about 60% of the world's rare earths. And what we'll talk about more in a minute ties into more supply and demand. But that whole dynamic changed in the 1980s. Um, the, actually, the premier of China at the time, standing on a rare earth mine, said, uh, made a very shrewd sort of a prediction. He said, the Middle East has oil and, and China has rare earths. Deng Xiaoping said it. And... At that time, what we can see now in hindsight is China maybe understood before Europe, before the US, that rare earths were about to become the backbone of manufacturing in the next, in the 21st century, which was still another, you know, 25 years away or so. But, um, you know, if you look then at how tech, you know, they're in all modern technology. I mean, recently somebody said like that the next sort of Cold War 2.0 won't be an arms race; it'll be a, a semiconductor race. So, so from everything from a microwave to you know the engine in a car or a truck to you know rods for nuclear reactors to you know aviation industry, 
particularly now what's coming is energy transition. So all, you know, electric cars, solar power, wind power. It's it's easier to say there's not an industry where we don't use rare earths or, you know, another term for them. They're also maybe known as technology metals. Um, but literally, um, they're, they're just about using every, everything we use today in modern life. Now, are these are these types of metals and elements, are they primarily kind of consumed by, um, you know, high tech? What, what kind of things are these things going into? Is it mainly just for microchips? Is it for, um, you know, screen? I mean, is it basically just high technology uh, that is utilizing and consuming things? Or are there other industries that are kind of adjacent to these that also are seeing an increased demand? Because I think we can all kind of understand that, you know, technology, you know, runs our lives. I mean, you know, it's, you know, we're talking on a computer across the uh, across the Atlantic Ocean. We have cell phones, um, you know, and everything. Uh, you know, are there other industries that are blossoming or becoming more prevalent that are consuming these types of commodities, or are these things mainly based in technology? Not that it's a bad thing. I mean, if, again, I think technology really is. You know, you know, my my dishwasher has a has a circuit board and has a has a you know a computer in it. My my TV, my stereo. I mean, everything does. The only thing it doesn't have is maybe my watch. <laughs> ironically yeah. enough. But um, are there any other industries that are kind of growing to, uh, you know, be another end use buyer to increase the market for these things? Well, yeah, I mean, I think you touched on it there. First and foremost, um, you know, we touch, see and feel them every day. I mean, you couldn't swipe your, your phone without Indium. So just, just, you know, starting from a baseline is, you know, every industry from modern technology to, um, electric car, solar power, wind power, and uh, alloys and jet engines. Um, you know, the sort of burgeoning, or you could say space exploration is becoming a fully fledged space industry. But what we're finding as well, the future technologies that are coming, for example, because of rare earths, we have the next generation, what, what you call um, photovoltaics, which is thin film solar cells. So, in the not too distant future, now the technology is already there. It's just, you know, a few years away from being sort of mainstream. In the not too distant future, you won't need a charger for your phone. You won't need a charger for your car because of this thin film technology, which will be embedded in the case of your phone, in the roof of your car, in the windows of your car, in the side of buildings, not just in the windows. Um, that's, a, that's a new area that's coming in. Um, another example would be, let's say, infrared technology, which generally is associated with, you know, night vision and, um, you know, military capabilities. That technology is now in, in the most luxurious of cars, you know, for safety and automation and um, uh, as a reactionary sort of security system. But that same technology now is also coming down in another couple of years. It'll be in every car we drive, you know. Uh, wearable medical devices is another one. Um, there's a... It's almost like a paste, but it actually is 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 where Earth's oxides that will be able to be worn and monitor in real time, you know, bodily functions. It'll be able to administer pain medication. That's another big area coming. Recently, if somebody was to Google on YouTube, I mean, you'd have to see it to believe it. But again, because of rare Earth's gallium and a mixture of another one, they show a little tiny video of a metal robot behind bars, like in a small jail cell. And the, and the robot goes from metal and it liquefies itself. It slips in under the bars and re-solidifies re again. Now, that's a new technology, but where that will go eventually in the end is it'll they sell a tiny little robot into the body to sort of retrieve bacteria and remove them. So 
Um, it's really, you could say, the century of rare earths. And because of their sort of malleability, they come in metal form, they can liquefy, they can be in nitrate form, they can be oxide form. So, you know, there it's it's early days, you could say, as well, with what's coming, you know. Yeah, absolutely. I've I've seen that video you're talking about. It's pretty cool. I know also uh, DARPA was doing some uh, other projects where they were uh, exploring kind of that transitionary, um, you know, I, I was, they had a really cool word for it. And I can't remember. I don't want to misspeak, but it's like, uh, you know, like I think it's like they're calling it maybe it's phase transition of, of things that can go from, you know, solid to liquid to the malleability of it. It was really cool. It's like this like little like like block and then it just moves through like what looks like jail bars. It was, it was really interesting. So I think we've kind of covered, you know, the specifics of, you know, this market and where it's going. Obviously we have, you know, several different commodities that are needed for these burgeoning markets, or I should say the development and the, and, and the cutting edge of markets that have been around for a while, you know, people have, you know, there's been little solar cells and calculators for decades, but now we're talking about putting solar cells on the sides of buildings to help, you know, generate electricity. We're talking about doing things that are, you know, that people would never would have thought about. I mean, already we have cars that have photovoltaic roofs, um, you know, that, that, you know, do things to run, you know, they don't run the car, but they run, you know, the, the air conditioning, but we're, we're seeing these things kind of transition in an interesting way. So now that we've kind of covered the market, Let's cover the production. So, you know, obviously in the name, something like rare earth means that you just don't go out in your, you know, garden and be like, oh, I have a trowel full of indium or, or something like that. You know, these things are inherently scarce, which, you know, drives into the reason that there's a market and these things have, you know, a traded uh, commodity value. So you mentioned that, you know, back in the, you know, 60s, 70s, 80s, the <clears throat> the United States was the primary uh, producer of a lot of these rare earth elements. Now, um, you know, it's the it's, uh, you know, Asia, Southeast Asia, uh, countries like China and people that are mining and producing them. What kind of issues arise from this? Now, do we just have, uh, you know, in general, you know, and, I, and I'll let you kind of go into this a little bit more. But, you know, we're, are we looking at something where other countries are developing mining operations? Are these metals in other places that just haven't had the production capacity ramped up? Um, let's talk a little bit about the production and, you know, maybe some of the issues that drive um you know, what you do in the market to help. Yeah. Well, it's funny now. It's it's interesting to, that we're speaking today, um, the 15th of August, because today is actually the one-year anniversary, the eve of the Inflation Reduction Act. And despite the name, the Inflation Reduction Act is all about energy transition. It's all about solar power, wind power. And the U.S., just I'm speaking about the U.S. now, because obviously your audience would be mostly North American, you know, the U.S. is offering up to, I think, something like 300 billion in subsidies directly towards this industry. Now, why is that? Um, because China, uh, let, actually, let me just go back a little bit in time first before we get there. So, as I said, in the 1980s, the U.S. was producing about 60 percent uh, of the world's rare earths in Mountain Pass in California, which is still um, producing today. However, the difference is everything that's produced in mountain pass in california has to be sold to china to be refined and this is the key to the whole discussion that we're having is despite the name rare earths are not that rare and um, you'll find them in abundance in north america uh, we're talking about maybe north of sweden they have a million tons japan are talking about mining the seabed for rare earths and uh, vietnam thinks they also might have them but What's difficult is finding them in abundance. So 
to give you some context on that, Alex, rare earths do not ever occur naturally uh, in the earth's crust. They're always a byproduct of another raw material. So just to give you an idea, gallium is a byproduct of aluminum uh, mining. Uh, hafnium, which you need in, in, in jet alloys and rods for nuclear reactors and in you know uh, for the space industry. Hafnium is a byproduct of zirconium mining at a ratio of 51. So for, for every 50 tons of zirconium, you'll only get one ton of hafnium. So that's what makes them limited. Now, here's the real challenge is in the 1980s, China decided they would become the dominant market leader in rare earths. Now, this is a, you know, a, a generation ago, and they have now achieved that goal. And, and specifically what happened is both the US and Europe um, and other countries, I think, in the in the 80s and the 90s, we were sort of high on the idea of, of the globalization drug, if you will. Um, you know, it's a global economy. And at the time, I think the US allowed China to legitimately move all the refining of rare earths to China. So China now refines 90% of the world's rare earths. And at the time, the US and Europe thought, you know, it's, you know, you know, in, in Europe, we have to say in the Europeans, they, they want to drive their Teslas, but they don't want to mine in the back in the backyard, right? So Europe and the US were happy to allow China to do the, because, because rare earths don't occur naturally, and they're sort of chemically similar, the, they have to be extracted and they have to be separated and then they have to be refined. So it's sort of complicated. It's a bit messy. So China was able to do it, you know, very, very inexpensively. And we sort of allowed that to happen before we realized that, you know, these raw materials are now critical to any nation's economic prosperity and also increasingly military capability. So like you now have the, the Inflation Reduction Act in the US, which is a great, great sort of an offer. But what people or politicians don't know about, you know, sort of the, the energy industry or, or refining is that it didn't, you know, China didn't achieve their dominance overnight. And it'll take another generation for Europe and the US to catch up. And so just to give you some context before I finish on that, Alex, is um, China has 39 universities producing um, degrees in critical minerals, so green in metallurgy. So a metallurgist is the person you need for this refining. So China's been producing, or sorry, graduating 200 metallurgists a week, every week for the last 30 years. Um, the US only has a handful of universities uh, with degrees in critical minerals. In fact, part of the Inflation Reduction Act is to, to increase the, uh, the degrees and the studies in, in critical minerals. So in, the, in China, there's maybe, I'd say, 300,000 metallurgists in the U.S., maybe 400. So that will just give you an idea of how, how long it's going to take. Is U.S., Europe, we just don't have the human capital or the engineering expertise. Even if we have the raw materials, we don't have the engineering expertise at the moment. And there isn't even one refinery in the U.S. or Europe. I'm not, I know I mentioned in the U.S. a lot. It's just because, obviously, your, your audience is North American, but Europe is absolutely in 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 the same position we have we we rely on china for the raw materials yeah absolutely that you bring up a few good points that i want to kind of uh, go through so basically the big thing that you're saying is tell your kids to become metallurgist <laughs> you know for, for the future that's uh you know don't be a doctor don't be a lawyer 
uh, you know, don't be anything, but be, be a metallurgist. You'll be in high demand. Um, but going back to that, um, you know, it makes sense that these things are byproducts. I mean, we see that a lot in industry. I mean, you know, you're talking about high tech industry. I mean, you know, plutonium is a is not a naturally occurring element. It's a byproduct of nuclear reaction for power. It's where you get that from. And you know, there's many other examples of that kind of, um, you know, trade off of receiving something from something else when it comes to, you know, industry manufacturing. So, you know, taking that into account, you know, we have some mines here. Obviously, we have some production capabilities that we, you know, we, we produce the raw material of these things, but it just has to be refined. You know, you don't build a skyscraper out of metal, out of iron ore, you know, it has to be refined and smelted and turned into steel. And then it has to be formed and, you know, put into I-beams and you bolt it together. So, you know, that whole, you know, uh, system of processes isn't, you know, located here or really in Europe as well. You know, it's, it's mainly focused at China. Now, you know, mentioning that, you know, we you know, collectively as a, you know, world economy, if you will, you know, because it's not just the United States that consumes these, it's, you know, North America, South America, Europe, Africa, everyone consumes these, but we kind of generally funneled the refining capabilities to China, um, you know, throughout the 80s. What really was the locus of that? Now, is are the are the refining of these things inherently messy, kind of like, uh, you know, refining, you know, any other, you know, relatively toxic or pollutant laden um, industry. What's really kind of is the reason for that just because China jumped on and said, hey, we see that we could be the leader in this and we're going to take the initiative to do that kind of like, um, you know, people in the Middle East, you know, draw oil. They have a lot of that. They focus their economies on that, you know, generally shifting. They're getting into, um, you know, finance. But was it just something where they as a collective economy said, you know, this is something that we can do to be of need to be of use in this? Or what were some of kind of the reasons that led to China really being the focus of the refining of these raw materials into usable end products? Okay. Yeah, good point. It's, it's actually, I'd say, uh, three things. One you listed, which is, um, it is complicated. It's sort of messy. And, you know, it can be sort of a little bit, it is toxic, environmentally toxic, if it's not done correct. So, so China at the time was providing this option where obviously labor costs were cheaper. They were able to do it a lot less expensively. So that was the first reason. The second one was, I think it's true to say, I mean, look, obviously this is my opinion as well, and I only speak for myself, but I do think we were high on globalization for the last few decades. And at the time, we didn't seem to think that it's a good idea. It wouldn't be a bad idea to allow one country to sort of, you know, uh, control the, the supply of, of a raw, a raw material that, that's critical to economic prosperity. So I think globalization came into it a little bit and we just sort of said, well, you know, we'll go ahead and let China do them on the cheap and then we'll just buy them from China, right? The third one was, um, you know, China has big plans themselves right now today for electric cars. I mean, last year they doubled their production of electric cars. You can buy Chinese electric cars here in Europe now. Um, so they have big plans themselves for electric cars, for wind and solar. Um, and it's not necessarily, in all cases, a geopolitical strategy. It's, it's just, you know, domestically, economically, China, but well, I don't know if anybody would know this, but China, there's probably only half the population or maybe less than half the population on the grid. So China is still bringing sort of hundreds of million people people out of poverty into the middle class. So, so they have big plans for themselves as well. So if you combine the three, that's why we are, we are where we are today, except Europe and the US 
In Europe, we have the Critical Minerals Act. In the US, the Inflation Reduction Act has finally sort of woken up to the fact that I think as well, after the Russia's ag aggression in Ukraine, you know, Europe realized we're relying too much on uh, Russia for oil and gas. And we're accelerating our transition now to low carbon economies. And we realized that, uh oh, the only you know supplier we have is China. So now we've got it. So, you know, it's it's I think as well, you know, it can happen in life, not just in business or, or geopolitical is sometimes, you know, we, we go down a certain road and it can have unintended consequences. And it's only later we realize, OK, we need to backtrack or we need to change course here. Yeah, no, the the in, the energy independence argument is really kind of an interesting one to make. Um, again, not taking one side or the other, just looking at it strictly as a um, you know matter of function. You know, people need to be able to turn the lights on. You know, you need you want your hospital to have power. Um, you know, where that comes from, you know, notwithstanding, but a lot of things come from you know carbon carbon based fuels. You know, things like uh, you know your oil, your gas, your coal. And if you have a supply line that is beholden to one thing, then that whole thing drops off. Your society ceases to function. And especially with high technology as well, having something so critical to infrastructure, um, you know, be, again, directly related to a single point source. You know, granted, in the United States, we have, you know, a little bit of benefit from the fact that we have, you know, very vast amounts of things like uh, coal, natural gas, oil that we can produce in various, uh, you know, various areas, you know, Europe. Uh, dealing with the issues of supply lines from Russia with everything happening there, you know, being unfortunate is definitely illustrates the point that again, further highlights the need for, you know, the, the ability to have domestic production from, from start to finish of a certain finished good. And in this case being rare earth elements from the extraction, refining, or sorry, um, the production, extraction and refining um, in one place. So I think we are at least in a little bit closer to home where you don't have to ship it across an ocean or, you know, rely on, you know, again, one country for its sourcing. Now, with these things that are kind of in motion, uh, you know, what's kind of the runoff? Because you mentioned that it took a generation for China to kind of become the powerhouse and develop the systems, processes and abilities to be in the position they are. So as far as what's going on with, again, just picking on the United States or North, let's just call it North America and Europe you know, how far out are we from, from these things, uh, you know, being up and running? Is it again, a generational thing or is the, are we able to build on the lessons learned previously to tool up this stuff a lot quicker? It's a, it's the question of the day, Alex. It's the question of the day. Um, <laughs> just in the last 90 days, you know, Sweden announced, they think they have about a million tons of rare earths up near the Arctic. Right. But the estimate is that, um, if that's true, and if it goes ahead with approvals and everything, it'll be 15 years before any of those raw materials um, are available, you know, to go into, into you know, um, uh, devices or cars or whatever the case might be. The U.S., um, in fact, the U.S. Department of Defense signed an agreement with Linus Corp from Australia recently. Linus Corp is the largest producer outside of China, and I think they're going to... They're planning to build a refining facility in either Texas or Florida. And, um, you know, they haven't broken ground yet. It's still a long way to go. But but what's interesting about all of this is even if you see a refining, I mean, the U.S. Department of Defense, that's just for themselves. I mean, that's never mind Ford Motor Company, Apple Computers, whoever. You know, they, they said they just like it, there's three quarters of a ton of rare earths in one F-35 fighter jet. And the Department of Defense has realized we need to source our own rare earths here. So um, 
it's just a sort of a drop in the ocean. But one thing as well that's very, very obvious is even if we see more production in the US and Europe, which we likely will in the next day, say 10 or 15 years, just think of the labor costs in the US or Europe compared to China and also how much more sustainably likely that would be. So either way, uh, even, you know, even if we are, you know, there are other so supply chains coming on, it, it will be more expensive to bring them to market. And, and, and just to give you a quick estimate as well, gallium, for example, it's estimated here in Europe that between now and 2030, we're going to consume between seven to 26 times more gallium than we are today. Um, so we've got, you know, a lot of different variables at work. One is, you know, 90% of the world's rare earths today come from China. We have no choice in the matter because we don't have the human expertise outside of there. And two, demand is, is increasing worldwide. The truth of it is, and, you know, people who are more of an expert than I would say, is um, this probably won't be enough of these raw materials. We might even see some car manufacturers not make it through this. If every car manufacturer is going to go electric, there won't be enough raw materials for that. Unless yeah, we find another technology. No, absolutely. I think that those are all very good, very good points to make. So uh, I, I find the, 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 the economic side of this thing fascinating, but I want to kind of get into the investing side because it's the alternative investing advantage podcast, not the, uh, you know, global <laughs> um, review podcast, but you know, so so we've kind of covered again just how important these things are, the the kind of the genesis of where we got to be with these things, um, you know, being utilized and the reasoning that these markets are cropping up. So how does it kind of work from the investing side? Um, you know, it's easy enough for me to say, hey, you know, I go down to my local jewelry shop and buy, you know, one ounce gold coin. It has value. I can sell it back. And and gold also being, you know, not necessarily lumped into what we're saying, but it is a rare earth element. It is used extensively in electronics. Um, things like silver is still the currently the correct me if I'm wrong, but the the best conductor of electricity that we currently have that's not some type of crazy superconductor where you have to chill it to minus two hundred degrees to be effective. Um, you know, these things are, you know, do have very big applications in industry. They're not just going into, you know, your wedding ring. So, you know, what's kind of, what does the market look like for this? So if someone wants to say, okay, great, I understand this is, you know, something I can, you know, has the potential to, you know, buy low, sell high, you know, has a market that I can actually invest in. Um, and again, we kind of briefly covered in the beginning of this, you know, you couldn't go and invest in a mine and mining fractional shares have been around for a long time for all sorts of industries, iron ore, silver, aluminum, all sorts of stuff have been out there for uh, fractional mining shares. But what we're talking about here, like you said, is more of kind of the the tangible investment of buying, let's say, a you know, a block of gallium or, you know, investing into a chunk of neodymium, like something that is, you know, tangible, physical, okay, you can reach out and touch it, it sits in a vault, obviously, you're not keeping this in your house. Um, you know, how does this market work? Um, is there any similarities or corollaries between things like, um, like oil production? Is it, you know, the, the someone produces it, they sell it to be refined, and then the refiners sell it out to end users? Where's the intermediary market? Uh, flush in. I think you kind of get what I'm talking about. I could, you know, try sure. to draw it out as much as I can, but let's let's try to transition a little bit into that on the market and how how you actually invest in things like this. Okay, so um, just to go back to I think the, one of the things I said at the very beginning, which is the most important thing, you know, from an investment perspective about us is that it's not our primary business. And again, that might sound like a contradiction, but our primary business is we buy. Where it's directly from producers 
and we resell them. I can give you an exact number. We've 2,480 at last count. We've 2,480 industry buyers in 70 different countries. So we've plenty of clients in the US as well as Europe and the Far East. Now, that's what we're doing 80% of the time. If we weren't doing that, this wouldn't be safe. If I was just a sales and marketing company, maybe, who thought I could buy these metals from China and then we can sell them to the US Department of Defense in five years, you know, red flags everywhere. Because if you're not connected to the industry or even better, if you're not in the industry, it just wouldn't be safe. Um, so we've a sort of a, a warranty statement, a three-way guarantee, if you will, which the first one we guarantee is that you're buying uh, industrial grade, you know, gallium or germanium or hafnium that can be liquidated to any industry buyer at any time because the chain of custody is also very important as well. Um, we provide storage, as you mentioned, our facility is, um, it's in, you know, it's we've had an ISO 9001 uh, QM uh, management certificate consistently since 2003. So we store for investors, we store our own inventory, and we also in store for industry clients there as well. And then the last one is the liquidation. The most important thing really in terms of private investors is who's going to, who am I going to sell this stuff to, right? You're, as you rightly pointed out, there's no point in having, you know, um, gallium in the safe in, in the backyard or somewhere. Cause you know, for example, if you don't have chain of custody, if you don't have this raw material in its original packaging from the producer, no industry buyer will purchase it. So, we also provide the liquidation. We guarantee we'll mediate a sale to another industry buyer or uh, we'll buy it for our own inventory. So we sort of have to provide that because otherwise, you know, our, our, our private investors are not in the industry. We're, we're basically inviting investors to participate in the industry. And of course, there's a spread. Um, it's very much the same paradigm as buying gold and silver in, in the sense that there's a bid and an ask spread as well uh, in the transaction. But this is the only, I suppose the point I'm making is the only way to do it safely is buying from a bona fide guaranteed sort of industry supplier of rare earths. But other than that, it's exactly the same as buying gold or silver. So I think you brought up a really interesting point there is that, um, and, and you know, it's, it's, I like to be able to draw corollaries between industries and things that people, you know, have a lot more exposure to, you know, it's easy to say, oh, I have this gold ring, I can go down to this jewelry store and sell it. Um, the same kind of economic principle is there is that you're buying a material that is desirable to other people. But unlike, you know, things like precious metals, where I could have, and obviously the, if I, I guess there's pun, there's no way around the pun, the gold standard, you know, of precious metal, you know, investment coins would be something like a U.S. Um, um, a US gold buffalo, you know, it's everyone knows the standard of that. If you have one and it's in good condition, you're going to get top dollar for that because, you know, it's refined out to a, you know, minute fraction that no one else is spending the money on to, you know, refine down to. You have that, you know, standard unit of measure saying, OK, that's great. Now, when it comes to, but but you also have the ability to have something like 14 karat gold, um, you know, or something that's gold plated, you have enough of it, there's still a buyer for it. But unlike that, where it's kind of all the way down the purity scale, there's someone that wants it, there's some value there, they can go refine it, melt it, do whatever they want to with it. Um, you know, chain of custody and purity standards are very important in what you're doing because you're talking about things that are very high tech and cutting edge. You know, a company, let's say Lockheed is not going to purchase, you know, 
you know, gallium or germanium or neodymium for putting into an F-35 fighter if, you know, I just walk up, knock on their door over and, you know, Scotts or in, in California, I'm like, hey, I got this, want to buy some metals? Like, <laughs> they're not going to do that. Um, so yeah, exactly. How is that? How is that kind of achieved? And how do people kind of, you know, again, you know, obviously, you know, everyone knows we put this out there, you know, you're you're in the business of doing this, you know, you you are, you know, the on the the re and forgive me if I'm using it wrong, but the retail side of this, you know, you have, you know, you provide a service to purchase this and then a market for it to be sold. But what are some things for people to look out for in this in this industry? I mean, obviously, you're probably not the only people that do this. Uh, you know, what are some things that you see as issues in your industry that, you know, if someone's interested in doing this and they're doing research, what are the kind of the big red flags to look out for um, when coming into this? Obviously, it's easy enough to say if someone has, you know, a, you know, a 50, 70 percent markup uh, on their spread you know, that's really hard to recoup. You really got to get like a 4X multiple on the original um, bid to make to make money on that. But what are some other things that kind of play into issues that investors might see when they're looking to invest in rare earth metals? Yeah, it's a great point, Alex. And I would suggest anybody at this stage, you know, that might be interested just to go into information gathering stage. And believe it or not, there's about seven points that people really, really need to know before they go ahead. Now, one thing that's I know is 100% certain that might come as a surprise to you is we are the only industry supplier in the world that offer rare earths to private investors. And I know that for a fact. Now, can you buy neodymium? Can you go to eBay or Amazon and stuff and maybe buy small amounts of these raw materials? You probably can. However, you're buying on eBay. You're buying from a hobbyist. You've no idea what the sort of the purity levels are. So there are hobbyists and then our offer is for sort of serious private investors. And to best explain it, I'll tell you how and why we came about to be doing what we're doing. So we're in business as an industry supplier since 1999. So we're nearly 25 years in business buying and selling these raw materials. Now, it, it's, it was only in about 2010 that we've since 2010, we've been offering uh, private investors to participate in the industry. And simply how it happened was, um, you know, we, we, we purchased what was a, 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 vol, a storage facility. It was a bunker in World War II in Frankfurt, two levels below ground, one level above. We converted it to a bank level secure vault. And we started to store there because our own industry clients we're asking is, could we also provide storage? So most of our clients wouldn't have the capital, you know, to go directly to a producer and they're not buying enough volume or enough scale to go directly to a producer. However, they would need a steady supply. Let's say they're making medical devices in a factory in Germany or Japan or Liechtenstein. So they would need a steady supply of these raw materials, but they don't have the capacity to buy huge amounts. And they don't have the possibility to storage. So, so we're offering storage to our industry clients. And then being sort of entrepreneurial, we thought, well, uh, why not offer the same to private investors? So we've only been offering this to private investors since 2010. And, and to be honest, at the beginning, mostly in Europe, it wasn't exclusive to Europe, but, a, you know, it's a German company. We're based in Germany. You know, we were marketing mostly i suppose in germany austria switzerland the german-speaking world there's 100 million people then that those three countries alone so that was enough of a way to begin and then we just you know over the years we've been accumulating and getting more and more interest from the us and um, i work directly with clients in ireland uh, uk and north america um, and we're 
you know, in the process of actually we've bought land to build a second facility. You know, we turn over about 100 million a year on the industrial side, um, but both areas of the business are growing. But, but I can honestly say one of the things you really, really would have to do is make sure whoever you're dealing with is an industry supplier like ourselves. Um, and I, 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 I'm, I'm, I know we're the only one at the moment. Now, in the future, will there be others? There may well be. But currently, at this moment in time, unless you're a hobbyist, um, you know, we offer this to to sort of serious private investors. Yeah, and and I would think especially for something like this, not that you know, again, time time will tell. I I don't think that if you were to go back to you know, again, when we first started using these things in a cathode ray, um, you know, TVs, that people would have been like, oh, this is going to be something that is going to be in fighter jets. You know, the the markets markets change. We have no idea where they're going to go. But on the hobbyist side of things, you know, certainly. You know, you could say, okay, I have a big, you know, roll of high grade wire. There might be someone in their garage that's putting together, you know, audiophile level speaker cables, you know, and there might be a market for that. But, uh, you know, with the, you know, with the primary use case of these things being in the high tech manufacturing, needing to have like known standards of purity. And especially, I mean, people don't realize things like aerospace when you're talking about, um, you know, like commercial jet airliners. Every single nut and bolt on those things is serialized, where you can trace back the origin point to an exact refining date, everything. So that way, if there's a critical failure and, you know, God forbid a jet airplane goes down, they can say, okay, this bolt broke. It was manufactured Mm -hmm. here on this date. This was the guy manning the machine. That's why the standards of purity for these kind of things have to be so precise. And, you know, again, the reason why something like this is important. So exactly. And what you said earlier as well, Alex, um, about like the US Department of Defense or they're just not going to buy these raw materials from anybody, you know. They won't buy from anybody, even us, if our raw materials are not in the original packaging from the producer, so the chain of custody is completely intact, you know. And just, yeah. again, just it's timely that we're speaking because just two weeks ago, China has started to restrict the export of two of the raw materials, germanium and gallium, and in the last couple of weeks, like one is up about 10%, one is up 15%. So what we're about to see, which we haven't seen in over a decade, is China is weaponizing economically where Earths. Um, we believe that they're going to re- restrict. They haven't said who um, who exactly they're banning or restricting. But if you're exporting gallium now in China, what you have to do in the last two weeks, which you didn't have to do before, is get a license to do it so the Chinese government can, can see who the consignee is. And if that consignee, as far as we know, is either US, Holland, or Japan, they will restrict the exports. Why is that happening? It's a retaliatory measure because Holland, Japan, and the US are sort of restricting certain technologies for these new superconductors getting to China. So we're in the middle of a sort of a trade uh, war Tensions are escalating, political sort of instability between is, is sort of manifesto. There's all these other dynamics as well that come into it, you know. No, absolutely. And I think those are, are very good things to point out is that, you know, this all plays into, you know, although as, as bad as it is and as painful as that might be for certain industries, when things like that happen, I mean, take take oil, for example. I mean, if you look at the prices of, you know, refined oil, especially somewhere in Europe, like Europe, the price per liter since the Ukraine conflict has 
dramatically increased. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you know the price per liter for refined um, you know petroleum products in Europe has skyrocketed. Not so much in the United States. It's risen for 11 consecutive months in the United States because of similar things and supply chains and tariffs and you know things like that that are happening. But to the point of that is that if you have rising you know tensions and you have restrictions of the source point of these materials, if you already own them, that dramatically drives up the cost and then therefore makes the old adage, you know, kind of, again, to bring this back to home base and make it very simple, you buy low and you sell high. That's the basis of investing. You want to buy for a certain price and sell for a profit. And then, you know, these things being what they are and as complicated as they are, the nice part is that you can always kind of boil down to that. What is going to increase the cost of my good is either going to be supplier demand or a combination of both. And all the things we've talked about today definitely drive into that. So with that said, I think that's kind of a good way to kind of wrap this up. We're hitting right on 44 minutes. So again, making my producer happy of getting these things to be 45 minutes on the dot is what I try to do. But if people are interested in getting in touch with you, Louis, and they're, you know, want to learn more, they maybe potentially want to invest in rare earths. Uh, what are some good ways to get in touch with you? Um, where can they learn more? Um, you know, kind of give us, give us, give us the, the rundown on how to get in touch with you and where they can get more information. Okay. Well, um, I'll give you my, my own email, and, and if, if anybody wants to email me just to sort of start the information gathering, just mention Alex Perny and Advanta IRA. Um, so my email is louis, L-O-U-I-S, at strategicmetalsinvest.com. Uh, alternatively, if they just want to visit the website and download a brochure, all the information is there. There's a lot of you know, good educational stuff there. So the, the website is www.strategicmetals.com strategicmetalsinvest.com. All right, Louis. Well, again, I thank you very much for being on with us today. I always appreciate people taking time out of their busy days. Time is, talking about commodities today, time is the only commodity that we we don't get to make any more of. So I do appreciate you taking the time to be with us today. Uh, My name is Alex Perney. This has been the Alternative Investing Advantage Podcast. Thanks for joining, and we'll see you on the next. Tune in next week for more investing tips and strategies. Want to hear more episodes of the Alternative Investing Advantage? Search podcast at AdvantaIRA.com and subscribe.